Hi, I'm Trisha Johnson, host of Aspen Ideas To Go. Today, we're rebroadcasting one of our favorite shows from the archive, Millennials and Motivation, featuring Simon Sinek, Adam Grant, and Katie Couric. Please enjoy the show, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. When you look at the data, millennials are not that different from the rest of us in what they want. Millennials end up basically saying they want the same things out of life as everybody else, right? And usually that starts with, I want a really great family. I want a job that's meaningful and enjoyable and motivating. Uh, I want to have a community that I'm part of. Um, I want to be able to support my lifestyle outside of work. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Adam Grant teaches management and psychology at the Wharton School. He studies how people find motivation and meaning to live more generous and creative lives. In today's show, he and author Simon Sinek talk about what drives millennials in the working world. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Millennials shoulder lots of stereotypes. They're called entitled and in need of instant gratification. They're not committed to their work and expect a work-life balance at their very first job. Throughout history, older generations have always picked on younger people. But are millennials really any different from the generations before them? How is technology affecting their development? Are they spending too much time following their bliss and missing out on serious career opportunities? Adam Grant and Simon Sinek sit down with award-winning journalist Katie Couric to discuss what motivates millennials at work and how the digital world is affecting their productivity. Here is their conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival stage. So good morning, everybody. So we're here to talk about millennials and the changing workforce. Many of you might be millennials. Many of you may have millennials. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. And before we start, I asked if, if Adam and Simon could tell you a little bit more about themselves. I think you, many of you know about their work, and uh, I'm sure you've read their books and seen them give TED Talks, etc. But I thought briefly you all could talk about why you became interested in this topic and, and what you're interested in talking about today. So Adam, why don't you start? Sure, I'll go first. Simon? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going I'm to tell you something that you don't know about what, how I think about you. Because right? we, we know each other. We have a lot of love and respect for each other's work. Um, uh, um, and, but here's something. You make me unbelievably insecure because all of your strengths are all of my weaknesses, right? Because you are so good at the, the, the quality of work that you do and the amount of research that you do and the, the, how detail-oriented you do and how, you know, and it's, it sort of goes back to sort of the TED Talk that you gave, which you haven't seen. I strongly recommend you see his TED Talk that he gave a couple years ago, which was brilliant. Um, um, and it's that sort of um, academic rigor that I'm, I struggle with every single day, and it's one of the reasons I admire you is because you can do things so well that I really struggle to do. This is beautiful. <laughs> I feel like a marriage counselor, sort of. But okay, Adam. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for that, Simon. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to say uh, the, the insecurity is mutual because <laughs> I, had, I had the great misfortune of uh, when I started having undergrads apply to my class at Wharton, I asked them, uh, what was your favorite book or what was your favorite TED Talk as part of the application? 
and I had more students named Simon than pretty much everybody else combined. And then the like when I asked, okay, why do you want to take this class? It wasn't, oh, I want to learn from your work or your view of the world. It was, we really want to learn more about Simon Sinek's ideas. <laughs> and we feel like your research is related to his work, and so maybe we'll, <laughs> osmosis will, will happen. Um, but you know, as, as a researcher, I, I always marvel at you know, like I'll spend years working on an idea and like you know, way too much time honing a presentation. And Simon will just stand up on stage off the cuff and give this like incredibly brilliant and charismatic talk. And I'm like, I, I hope I can learn to do that one day. And I'd also like to grow my hair back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now that the Mutual Admiration Society has uh, finished their work, let's, let's talk about the topic at hand, which is millennials. So, you guys, what do millennials want? <laughs> well, I, I have to say, Katie, the irony of you asking both of us this question, neither of us are millennials. So this is like asking men what women want. <laughs> but you, I, work, you know a lot, you work with a lot of them, and you observe sort of kind of cultural and professional trends. So knowing that, what, what have you gleaned from your research? I mean, yeah, look, I even have friends who are millennials, right? So that, <laughs> that, that qualifies me to, like, what's mansplaining? Is it millennial-splaining? <laughs> um, I think that... <laughs> I think that... Uh, answer the question. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer the question. So, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I think that actually the big surprise for me is that when you look at the data, millennials are not that different from the rest of us in what they want. Um, if you look at fundamental values, um, millennials end up basically saying they want the same things out of life as everybody else, right? And usually that starts with, I want a really great family. I want a job that's meaningful and enjoyable and motivating. Uh, I want to have a community that I'm part of. Um, I want to be able to support my lifestyle outside of work. And, uh, you know, like that, those are pretty much human universals. And I don't think there's anything that's generational about that. But millennials are more concerned about, uh, about self-expression and less concerned about social approval than most other generations. And so whatever they want, you're going to hear more about it. And so it may seem then that, you know, that there are differences because th the differences that exist maybe get amplified a little bit. So they're the oversharing generation in a way? You said it, I didn't. <laughs> or sharing. Yeah. No judgment. I... Th I I think the self-approval, I mean, the, 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 the approval part, I'm not sure that's true because of the obsession with followers and likes and posting things. Because if you didn't care about social approval, then all of the Instagram feeds would be private. And they're not. So many of them are public. And um, we, there was just a, a, um, an article in the paper yesterday about a young couple, um, 19 and 20, I think, years old. And she um, accidentally killed her boyfriend because they performed a stunt on YouTube where he put a textbook on his chest, an encyclopedia, and she put a gun to him, thinking that the book would stop the bullet, and it didn't. She killed him on YouTube, and they did, it, they did the stunt in order to get more followers. So that was just on the, in the paper yesterday. So, so I, that, that's, that, that there's sort of the desire to do things for followers, and, and, when, and I know in, in high schools, you, you know the research better than I do, which is when um, something doesn't get the number of followers, it can actually cause distress. And sometimes people will take down posts that don't get the kind of followers. And so it becomes more and more extreme, which is all public approval. And I think too much, I completely agree with everything you said about desire for family, desire for purpose, all of that's true. But the questions I think would be interesting to discuss is the manner in which they're going about achieving those things. Because those, I think, are the things that I think are sideways. Well, let's talk about that. In the world of work, I remember giving a commencement speech about three years ago and saying that 
the average, I guess it was for my daughter's high school graduating class, and I said they were going to have an average of 17 jobs by the time they stopped working. And I think actually that number is probably low uh, right now. So talk about kind of what, what impact this has had on the workplace and the kind of jobs they're looking for. First, from their perspective, and then let's talk about from the employer's perspective, because I know that's something that you all are asked about a lot. But let's talk about what they're looking for, work-wise. I think it's a double-edged sword, and to your point, it's, 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 there's, there's two parts. There's them, and then there's the employer. So I think everything that we're, we're talking about is true. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for a place they can feel like they belong and, and this stuff. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a generation that has grown up in a world of instant gratification, um, and it becomes it becomes normalized, you know, where if you want to watch a movie, you just stream it whenever you want to watch. You don't have to uh, check movie times. You can uh, buy something on Amazon. It shows up the very next day. Um, you can get a date just by swiping right. You know, everything's, everything's instantaneous. And so the belief that you can get what you want when you want it is now um, applied to other things like social relationships, loving relationships, and career. And so... Um, I've met some wonderful millennials, smart, talented, ambitious, you know, idealistic, and I see them in their entry-level jobs, and I say, how's it going? And they say, I think I'm going to quit. I'm like, why? Do you have a toxic boss? Is it horrible here? They're like, no, I just don't, I don't think this is for me. I'm like, how long have you been here? Like, four months. <laughs> no, it's true. And, yeah. and the problem is, it's, you know, their, their, their attitude is right, but, the, but they're treating it like a scavenger hunt. Like, I'm going to go from job to job to job to find the thing I'm looking for, but that's not how it works. You don't, you don't find love. You don't find the job you're looking for. You find a place where you feel like you can belong, you share their values, that, that you believe that they will foster you in your career, and you work very hard to maintain those feelings. Um, but, but conversely, uh, um, the, the, the cultures in which too many young people are coming into work are very, very broken cultures um, where they prioritize um, making a number at an arbitrary date over the care and growth of their own people and so the people who are coming into, their, uh, into these jobs never feel like the company really cares about them. They feel expendable. That if the company misses its arbitrary projections at the end of the year, they could get laid off. This has become so normalized. You find that very, very well-led companies um, actually don't have a millennial problem. And the millennials who work there work there for years and years and years. So w if they get what they're looking for, a place where they feel like they can belong, they will stay. So I, I think they, they have a, a sense of patience they need to practice, and companies need to improve the quality of their cultures. It's so funny to hear that because we have a, it's, I guess it's almost become an annual ritual now at Penn, where in September I will start to get calls and emails from the students who have just graduated. And the calls always start like this. I'm in an investment bank. And that's when I start laughing, because uh, I, I know what's coming next. Uh, the follow-up is, um, can I quit now, or do I have to stay until January so it looks like I was there two years on my resume? And I get more of those, those calls and emails than not. And you know, I've started to wonder, what, what do we do about that? And I actually think that you know, at Aspen, there's power in this room to actually just shift things for the entire generation of millennials. Um, and if you really wanted to, to make their careers more fulfilling, more meaningful, give them greater job satisfaction, the first thing I would encourage all of you to do is to collude to cause an economic recession. <laughs> I'm not joking, actually. One of the best predictors of how satisfied people are with their jobs two decades later is how was the economy when they graduated from college. And the worse the economy was doing, the happier you are in your career 20 and 30 years later. This is Emily Bianchi's research. What she shows is, um, especially millennials, have this expectation that I'm going to find the perfect job. 
And then, you know, as, as Tim Urban often puts it, happiness is just reality minus expectations. And so the higher your expectations are, the worse your life is going to be, even if, if your job was pretty good. And so one of the things that an economic recession does is it actually lowers expectations to something that's manageable, something that's realistic, something that's attainable. And then even if the job isn't perfect when you're in your 40s and 50s, you remember that experience of saying, wow, I'm really lucky that I got a job. And that sense of gratitude stays with you. So people who graduated like in 2008 from college are, are going to be really happy? If they got a job. Right. But if they, then... <laughs> that's, that's the rub. That's the rub. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. Simon Sinek's 2009 TED Talk has been viewed more than 33 million times. It's about how leaders inspire action. Katie Couric launched a production company called Katie Couric Media. Their conversation happened in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Here's Katie Couric. So what, what, what can corporate or, or companies do to, you know, we, we talk a lot, there's an article that just came out that Adam and I were talking about, it was in Forbes, I think it came out yesterday about what companies can do, and there was some thought, oh, you give millennials perks, you, you know, give them free cafeteria food, which I think is a terrible idea, by the way, because it doesn't get you out and mingling with other people, it doesn't help sort of local establishments and um, it kind of keeps you really insulated from different points of view, but that's just my opinion. But what, what you know, so they don't think perks are really help in the long term, but it's the, it's the culture and sort of a sense of purpose and what a company stands for in its mission statement. So can you guys think of, uh, of examples of companies that are really doing a good job retaining employees? Because I read that uh, this, this turnover for millennials is costing a ridiculous amount of money. What did this article say? I mean, it was just insane. Um, I can't find it right now, but I had it printed out. But it's a huge amount of money, millions and millions of dollars for companies. Yeah, the first thing I would say is um, I, th I think turnover is actually a good thing, right? The, the optimal turnover rate for a company is not zero. Um, and when you study this across industries, you'll see that, that basically, on average, about you know, 5 to 10% turnover in many industries actually leads to better company performance than zero, because you're rotating in new ideas, new skill sets, new backgrounds, and that's actually a source of, of real diversity, as opposed it to costs, just having the same people. But Adam, fight. sorry, it costs uh, $30 billion every year turnover. So a lot of companies probably don't think it's a great idea, right? Yeah, if they measure the annual cost, right? But then as you start to think about what's the impact five and 10 years down the line, I think what you see is a lot of those costs start to reverse. And of course, you can have too much turnover as well as too little. When I think about companies that are, um, that are at the forefront of this, um, I've been doing some work with Facebook over the last year. And we looked at their internal pulse survey to figure out what do their employees really want. And we started with millennials. And it turned out that there were three things millennials wanted out of work after sort of their basic needs were, were covered. The first one was a career, which was, you know, I want to be challenged. I want to grow. I want to experience mastery. Um, and I want to sort of rise in, in my influence. The second was a community. I want to, I want to belong. I want to have friends. Um, I want to feel valued around here. And the third was a cause. I want to have a sense of purpose. I want to feel like you know, our mission matters, and I make a meaningful contribution to that mission. 
And then we say, okay, this, this is kind of nice to know. And then we start comparing other age groups. And we see that these are the things that everyone at Facebook wants out of work. Uh, it turns out that's true if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. We even found a few people in their 60s who work at a tech company who wanted the same things. And you're kidding. It was, yeah, there, there were some. And what was so interesting about it was actually the, um, the importance of cause went up with every age group. Uh, so everybody said it was important. Um, but the stereotype that millennials, like, they're extra interested in meaning and purpose um, actually turns out to be false, at least at Facebook. It was the, quite the opposite. That as people rose in their careers, they were like, wow, I have, I have more to give. I have less to lose. Um, you know, I've covered a lot of my career objectives. And also, like, these millennials are entering the workforce. And if, you know, if people don't help them, we're all screwed. Let's talk about sort of the stereotypes of millennials, which, of course, you know, they're entitled that, you know, they, they want it now, they want work-life balance at the age of 22 when they really should kind of be putting the pedal to the metal and focusing on work, um, that they're not all that committed to their job, that they want to be mobile and flexible. Um, and, and really, a lot of these are not particularly flattering uh, descriptions. Do you think that they're getting an unfair rap in some way, Simon, or do you think those, those uh, descriptions are accurate? Um, I mean, it depends who you ask, I guess. If you ask older people, they think it's perfectly legit. Um, I think, I think what, it, before we judge or label them as, I mean, and just the research does show you, you know, um, <clears throat> throughout history, the old have always complained about the young. I mean, that, that's always been the case. But the, the words that are being used now are completely different than in the past. So the word entitled is not a word that has been used in, in the past of the old describing the young. That is a new one. That is, it would be, well, is in the past, it would be spoiled, right? Spoiled or wanting to change everything and break everything, dissatisfied, all the, lazy. That disrespectful. One, disrespectful, lazy. That, that one comes up all, all the time. But, but entitled is a new one. And I think what's, before we judge an entire generation, I think we have to understand where they came from. I think there needs to be the exercise of empathy. Every, uh, every generation uh, is affected by whatever the events of the day were when they came of age. Right? And it'll affect their worldview. So, for example, if, if your grandparents lived through the Great Depression and World War II, the odds are that they might be miserly and frugal. They're not broken. There's nothing wrong with them. It's because they grew up during rations, and it f informed their worldview. If you came of age during the 1960s and 70s during Vietnam and Richard Nixon, odds are you're a little cynical of authority figures, which is sort of how the boomers view the world. Well, now this generation, the millennial generation, is the first generation to come of age at the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium, the first generation to have social media and uh, cell phones ubiquitous in their lives. Um, uh, not to mention the fact that the parenting strategies from previous generations and how they were raised were also very, very different, and it affects their worldview. So we can make generalizations about a generation. Of course, it's not everybody, but we can make generalizations because of the events of the day. And I think we have to take account of those things, which some people are, being, are perceiving as entitlement, but rather it's just like, let's have some empathy for, for what they've gone through. I won't belabor the point, but sort of you can you can see sort of four general uh, four general uh, and this is the thing that I talked about that went silly on Facebook um, four general observations one so is real quickly just yeah, just yeah, as yeah. a quick caveat so so basically Simon did an interview part of it was taken at was it an audio interview or no, it, was a, it was a video interview video yeah. interview it was a, a section of it was put on YouTube Correct. and then Facebook and then it got in eight days how many views 80 million views 80 million views and now it's up to 100 and some 160 160 whatever not that we care about views yeah. or likes no. or followers right and not that Simon's looked them up either <laughs> I guess that's kind of universal huh Simon <laughs> but anyway 
Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, it, it I looked them up for him. It obviously resonated, and it was a, it was a, a comment about millennials. Sorry to kind of make fun of you that no, way. I, I do have to interject on this. The number of emails that I got saying you have to watch Simon's video about millennials. I was like, I, I've not reached that, that number of people in my lifetime, and he did it in eight days, which is okay. why I really dislike So what did you say? I, it was, I won the internet lottery. Let's just... <laughs> um, so here's, and this is what I talked about. I said, I said you can break it down into four things. Parenting, um, technology, impatience, and environment. So really quickly, technology. As I said before, um, uh, first generation uh, to, be grow, to grow up with, with uh, all the technology, um, and it has an impact on, on how we view the world. In other words, um, on it too much. We know there's a chemical in our body called dopamine. Um, and um, dopamine is released when we find something we're looking for or accomplish something we set out to accomplish. It's why we feel good when we win the game, when we find our keys, check something off our to-do list, that little, <gasps> that, you know, accomplish whatever we want. That, that's called dopamine. Dopamine is also the same chemical that's released when we drink, smoke, gamble, or use our cell phones. It's why we enjoy those things, right? And dopamine is basically the heart of most addiction. Most addictions are dopamine-based addictions. So some, you know, drinking alcohol is fine, drinking too much is dangerous. So social media and cell phones are exactly the same. They release dopamine. That bing, buzz, flash, or beep releases a hit of dopamine, which is why it feels good to get a text or get a like. Um, why you start shaking when you why you start when you phone. start looking for your phone and or it, looking for your phone when you're on your phone. Exactly. <laughs> and so maybe that's an age thing. Right. <laughs> It's like, you can always tell how old somebody is because young people type like this, older people type like this. Type like that. Um, Young-minded people type like that. Um, um, and so, the, if you look at alcoholics, if we compare them to alcoholics, there's some, some amazing data on this, which is, um, for children that drink before they're 15, I'll get the numbers, Adam is the one who gets the numbers always right, I'll get the numbers slightly wrong. When kids drink before they're 15, um, forty percent of them will become alcoholics. If they wait till something like nineteen, eight percent will become alcoholics. So it plummets, right? So if we're, we have age restrictions on alcohol, nicotine, and gambling. We don't let children engage with those things before eighteen or twenty-one. Yet we have no age restrictions on giving them access to an equally dangerous and dopamine-releasing device called the cell phone or social media, unfettered access. Um, which means that um, too many of them may be becoming addicted to the devices, which means that they struggle to deal with stress and other coping mechanisms when they're older. And we're seeing this reflected in suicide rates. The single, single biggest increase of suicide in the United States today is girls 10 to 15 years old. It has tripled in the past 15 years. Tripled. We also know that girls spend 40% more time on social media than boys. Not causal, but we should at least take account of these things. So we have to consider that too many young people have grown up with this unfettered access, probably have an addiction to the, the devices, which means they struggle to deal with stress uh, when they're older and may even struggle forming deep, meaningful relationships, which are words they use when I talk to them, that they struggle to form deep, meaningful relationships, which as social animals is really, really important. Um, the second thing I said was impatience, and I talked about it before, the sense of instant gratification, which they're applying to um, things that don't have instant gratification. Career like satisfaction. Love and career satisfaction. Uh, the... the the third thing was, um, what was the third thing? Parenting. 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 Right, thank you. Um, two, there, was, there was a shift in parenting strategies that happened, and I, I don't need to go into how it happened, but it happened. Um, um, and the way that millennials were raised was very different than the way previous generations were raised. Um, for example, they were told constantly that they can be anything and do anything they want 
just because they want it. Everybody's a winner. Everybody's a winner. And this whole sense of rewarding people that come in last and giving medals to everybody, the idea being nobody wants to be left behind, but it actually has an adverse effect. Helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting, you know. exactly. Like, it, when we used to get in trouble, it's like, what'd you do now? Where it became, what's wrong with your teacher? Right. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and that's fine. That's all fine and good when you're at school. But the problem is when they graduate and then they enter the workforce, they find out that they can't have or do anything just because they want it, that um, your parents can't get you a promotion. And I'm sure you deal with this. I've heard stories of parents filling out job applications. I've heard stories of parents complaining to the bosses that my kid didn't get a promotion. I've even heard stories in the military of parents calling officers and saying, why isn't my kid, right? Like, like the helicopter parenting isn't going away, even when they're in, in the career fields. Um, and so what these young people who are entering the workforce are realizing, it's shaking their entire view of themselves. They're not as confident as they thought they were. They, they're not capable as they thought they were. And so what that does is it shatters. They're not independent. Not independent. So it, it rattles self-confidence. And so this is a, a group of people, it's a, it's an, it's a generation that has, is very, very good at, at, at projecting happiness and confidence. Just look at anybody's social media feed. They're experts at projecting confidence. But how they feel and what they show you aren't the same. So when we engage with them, they all sound amazing and smart and, and like they know the answers and we're the idiots and it sounds fantastic. And we defer to them. We keep asking them. But the reality is there's huge amounts of insecurity. And, uh, and, and because they haven't practiced the social um, cues and the social uh, uh, skills of asking for help or accepting it when it's offered, they're not. And so there's a deep sense of loneliness and isolation. Then you combine that with the environment, which is what we talked about before, which is so many of our corporate environments to now, today now are throwbacks from the 80s and 90s. And we have very, very broken corporate cultures in America. The concept of shareholder value, shareholder supremacy, was a theory proposed in the late 1970s, popularized in the 80s and 90s. It's now standardized today. I would argue a failed, uh, a failed uh, a theory. The concept of using mass layoffs to balance the books on an annualized basis did not exist in the United States prior to the 1980s. Did not exist. It was a concept that was what was that was became popularized in the 80s and 90s during boom years of relative peace. So those standard ways of doing business in these very very different times are the are the environments in which young people are entering. And quite frankly, they're very, very broken corporate cultures, so they're not prioritizing the growth, the needs, the confidence of their people. They're prioritizing the needs of something else. And this is exaggerating the effects that, uh, of, of how this young generation grew up, which is why they're going from job to job to job, looking for someone to take care of them, that no one's doing that. How do you see this manifesting, Adam, in, in the career world. There's so many interesting things to pick up on there. Like I feel like we could do we could spend an hour talking about each of those four points. I agree. Um, I, and I have, I have tons of questions and also thinking about like okay, what what data points sort of would add to this story? How do we complicate it? So a few things that I think are, are interesting. Um, one is I think that I, I've been trying to sort of make sense of this this puzzle of, of social media. And Simon, I think you're exactly right that you know, there, there is this like extra premium on social approval and yet millennials say they care less about it than other generations do. But they seem to be more sensitive to it and more responsive to it. And it's almost like um, we, we know people are more concerned about, about social approval when others are watching them. And I think one of the, the challenges of social media is you are always being watched. And so it's like being on stage all the time. And there's a, there's a really interesting book that Mitch Prinstein just published this month called Popular. And I read it. Uh, he's a psychologist who, who studied sort of how people gain popularity and how they maintain it. And I read it and I was like, oh, now I understand why I wasn't cool in high school. Um, <laughs> thank you, Mitch. Uh, I understand why I'm still not cool and why, why I probably should care less than, than, I, than I thought I should, but 
he shows that there are basically two ways to become, um, to become popular. One is status, where uh, you're cool, you're superior to others, everybody looks, looks up to you. And the other is likability, where people enjoy spending time with you. And he shows that if you were popular in high school, that's actually a predictor of depression, anxiety, um, and lower career success uh, as you move into adulthood, which is the ultimate revenge of the nerds. <laughs> but... Um, What's interesting is um, likability in school is actually a really positive predictor of all sorts of career and life and social outcomes. And so one of the things I wonder is, can we teach anybody who has one of these social media addictions mm -hmm. to actually think about, like, how do I just build relationships where people like me, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to show off my status? I, I would actually love to hear both of you talk a little bit about uh, likability. Um, Katie, you are one of the most likable people I've ever met. Oh, um, Adam. Uh, you're, you're also incredible. Wait, pause. Um, women always get complimented on their communal traits. I should also say that you are so quick-witted um, when we have these conversations that it takes me a couple steps to catch up. Um, but if you, could, uh, if you could just talk a little bit about building likability over the course of a career, I think that's something we could all learn from. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> How many times do you get to interview a professional interviewer on stage? <laughs> We're going to turn the tables here. Oh, I, I, really? I, this is so not interesting. Uh, but Give us a soundbite at least. And then well, you, what, so what's the question? How to be likable? Yeah, what, what is it that you've found that actually makes people likable? I think if you're interested in other people, people, people like you. They, they, like, they like when you're interested in them because that reflects their own self-worth back at them, right? So I think I've always been very curious and interested in other people, and I, have a very, I think I have very strong emotional intelligence, not that high IQ, a little bit decent, but, um, but I, I think I'm very good at sensing when somebody's alone, and I've always been incredibly empathetic. Like if there's somebody in a room who is by himself or herself, I'm always going to that person to make sure they have somebody to talk to. If I see someone eating by themselves at a restaurant, they may want to be by themselves, and they may be perfectly happy, but I feel bad for them, and I almost go over and ask them if they want to join my table. So I, I, I'm almost overly empathetic in a way, but I'm very, uh, I'm self-centered, sure. My husband's here. He will tell you. <laughs> he, he will tell you all that's true. But I think I'm just very outwardly focused, and I think, I think that makes you more likable. Is that a good answer? I, I, think you're, I, I think you're exactly right, and I think you're right on it, which is, um, and this goes back to the social skills, which is the skills of listening. The skills... Sorry, what were you saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the skills of listening, this, you know, just listening is not hearing the words that were said. Listening is making someone feel heard, which are entirely different things. Um, you know, parroting back what somebody said is not listening. Um, the, the, um, all of these skills of empathy which is trying to, trying to uh, um, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, here, here's, a, here's a good example, which is it's so common in, in the workforce. You know, somebody walks into your office and says, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. If you don't pick up your numbers for the third quarter, I don't know what's going to happen. Right? Practicing of empathy is walking to someone's office and saying, your numbers are down for the third quarter in a row. Are you okay? And, um, and I think to, to, to all of these things, these, you know, these are all pieces of a bigger puzzle. No one piece is, is the answer, but these are all pieces of the bigger puzzle where those skills are being lost, and they're not being practiced. And the sense of isolation and, and removing distance. I mean, look, look at the lack of courage in social interaction amongst young people. The concept of ghosting, right? You go on one date, you don't want to call them back, that's fine. But, I mean, Does I already know what ghosting is. No. Okay, my so students okay. literally introduced me okay. to this last year, and I was like, so what? Ghosting is a phenomenon uh, predominantly amongst a younger generation that when you've decided that you want to break up with someone or you don't want to be their friend anymore, you literally just stop responding. You stop responding to texts. You don't answer phone calls. 
you stop, uh, you, you, may not re you may unfriend them across social media, but at the very minimum, you do nothing. And so I know of relationships that are six, seven months old, you know, dating, dating relationships, where one party decides they want to break up, and instead of having a breakup, they just ghost. They just, it's so, terrible. So can you imagine you text your girlfriend, hey, you want to get lunch today, and she doesn't reply. Are you okay? She doesn't reply. And it's the, it's the greatest act of cowardice not to have the confrontation, but the worst part is, the, is, is it, it, for the person on the, on the receiving end of it, the, f initial action, the initial reaction is panic. Something's happened to them, right? And then they log on and they see that they're just out with their friends. Like they find out that everything's fine from social media. They find out that they've been ghosted. Then the overwhelming feeling of what have I done wrong? Is it me? So it destroys their self-confidence. The desire to fi find out, so can we just talk about this, gets no response. It is so destructive. It's so shitty. It really is. It's like, it's, it's like, it's like the modern, it's like the, it's, it's the modern version of Burger putting the post-it on Carrie's carnations, basically. But even worse, even worse, because it makes you feel, talk about not feeling hurt. Yeah. It makes you feel completely Invisible. Invisible. And, right? and, it, and it's, it's what we're talking about right now, which is it's the person on the ghosting side, not the ghosted side, which is there's a, it's, it's the lack of social confidence. That Talk having, about no empathy. Having a big fight and getting some closure is better than ghosting, but it's an act of cowardice and a lack of skill set. And so the question is, is what happened to those skills and how can we rebuild those skills? And whether we like it or not, businesses have to pick up the slack because they're in the workforce now. But how, how do young people think that's okay? I mean, they get those values somewhere, right? And is it because of the lack of consequences from their parents? I just don't it's get easy, just how easier. you could have the, just have no sort of civil, civil, civilized communication skills or such a, a grotesque lack of respect for somebody else to do that. It's the lack of empathy. It's what we're talking about. I, I, and... Uh, we could debate the, the reason it happened, but uh, the question is, how do we help them? You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's discussion features Adam Grant, Simon Sinek, and Katie Couric. Please check out The Bridge from the Aspen Institute. It's a podcast that puts two thought leaders of different generations together for fierce, fun dialogue. The latest episode features Vera Papasova of Teen Vogue and Teresa Younger. She's the president of the Ms. Foundation for Women. Find the episode by searching The Bridge from the Aspen Institute on Apple Podcasts. Now back to our show. Here's Katie Couric. We want to talk about detaching from technology. I have the problem as much as any, you know, any millennial, although it's interesting. I have a 25-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old daughter. My 21-year-old's attachment and constant sort of focus on her device is much more than my 25-year-old because we, when Ellie was growing up, it was just sort of, you know, we were doing computer games and all that stuff, but it wasn't this, it's the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone, I think, today. Today. And, uh, but you, you can almost measure the impact that that has had on the level of attachment yeah. young people have. But what can, what can we do to, to, to get away from our devices? 
Well, I think, I mean, one thing we need to do is we all need to enforce tech detoxes, and we need to have other people enforce them on us, because we, we don't stick to them even when we mean to. There was a study that came out earlier this week, uh, Islet Nizi and her colleagues, they, um, they did these incredible experiments where they had people work on different kinds of tasks uh, when their phone was either sitting on the desk, sitting in their backpack, or sitting in a different room. And they found that if your phone is on your desk, even if it's not on, your working memory drops by 10%, and your fluid intelligence drops by 5%. Uh, there's some related research that actually shows that if you have a phone on your desk when you're just talking to a friend, um, you actually connect less and you, you feel less close to each other. Again, the phone is not even in use. And you even see some of those effects if the phone is in the same room. Um, leaving it in another room, I think, is, is a really key step. And we all need periods in our day where we do that. And then I think the question is, what do we teach people to do in that sort of time that's opened up? And I think it's exactly what you said, Katie. We need to teach people to ask questions. Um, to, I think that's how you show an interest in other people, is you, you ask them what's going on in their lives, what their goals are, what they're curious about. And uh, I think a lot of you read the New York Times piece that went viral a few years ago by Mandy Len Catron about how to fall in love with anyone, where you have this progressive set of questions that starts with kind of where did you grow up, and then it becomes increasingly intimate. And my, my students just ate that up, and they were like, wow, I now know how to talk to other humans. <laughs> can, can I, I actually had students come into office hours and start asking me like, how to fall in love questions to like, have a conversation with their professor, which is really uncomfortable. But, uh, but I think there's a paradox here, because um, I guess one other data point that comes to mind is uh, one of my all-time favorite studies was Jamie Pennebaker. He had people come together in, uh, in get-to-know-you groups, and they could talk about whatever they want for 15 minutes. In the end, they're asked, uh, how much did you like the group? And the more you talked, the more you liked the group. But also, the more you thought you learned about the other people in the group, which is impossible. You're talking. You cannot be learning. And Pennebaker just says, I guess that most of us find that it, communicating our thoughts is a supremely enjoyable learning experience. <laughs> but I, I think we actually have a challenge here, which is if we teach people to show an interest in others, um, everybody will deflect. The, the question, right? We're always just sort of asking questions, never answering them. And I, I guess I think we need new norms about how to actually have conversations that would, would solve this problem. We can force the behavior. Um, there's some good work done by David Marquet. You know, we, we often believe that to change behavior, first you change someone's thinking, then they'll change their behavior. And what he learned is it's actually the opposite. You force the change of behavior, and then they'll change their thinking. And so telling people, hey, you shouldn't use your phone and here are the reasons why, won't actually change the behavior. But how you create mechanisms in which you force the change of behavior, then they come along. So for example, in a work environment, I've been preaching, phones should be banned in conference rooms. And the reason is, is because it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's the consistency that matters more than matters most in, in, the relationship, in relationship building. So for example, it's not like when somebody does something intense for you, like buys you flowers or remembers your birthday, like that you fall in love with them. It's all the little, little things that add up over time. No one thing did it. And we've, we've removed that in the office space. So for example, when we're sitting waiting for a meeting to start, we're all sitting like this because Bob's running a few minutes late. Bob shows up, we all put our phone on the table, right? And then we conduct our meeting. That's a missed opportunity to build a relationship. If we get rid of the phones, banned, banned. So we all have to sit there now, right? And you say things like, how are you? <laughs> how was your weekend? I heard your dad was in hospital. Is he okay? Yes, thank you. He's doing much better. What we're doing is we're socially interacting. And for offices that I've worked with that have experimented with this, yeah. they've seen meetings become more productive. And more importantly, they've seen trust and cooperation skyrocket, yeah. not just a little bit, profoundly. Yeah. So that means conflict resolution, all that difficult stuff you know, is much easier when you know each other. Well, the worst thing is when you see somebody out to dinner. I remember I took a picture because <laughs> that was so, that kind of destroys my argument. But this, there, were these, there were these six people at a round table 
all having dinner all on their phones. And I thought that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. So of course I, I, I got I have my lots phone of those pictures. But, but, but I think you're right. I think it's, I, I, but I don't know. It's, it, I think people are addicted. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem. Just one final point. You know, addiction, you cannot trust your willpower to overcome an addiction. Your willpower is not strong enough. This is why we take the alcohol out of the alcoholic's house, because we, we can't just tell them, don't drink. Like, it doesn't work that way. And so it's the same thing. We actually have to force ourselves to physically remove it. Um, if you go out with your friends, don't bring a phone out for dinner. Like, literally don't bring it. Or if you have to, because you need to get an Uber home or something, everybody, everybody give your phone one to the left. So somebody else is holding your phone. So when you go to the bathroom, you have someone else's phone. You can't Shotgun Donald yeah. Trump's phone. Yeah. So... Like these, like, and, and, yeah. I, and I heard of families who've gone on family vacations where they wouldn't let anybody bring their phones. They brought one family phone. The first three days were awful, and then the family bonded, and it was the best family vacation they had. So the, when, I, when I think about doing this in organizations, uh, Leslie Perlow did this great study with the Fortune 500 technology company where the engineers were just interrupting each other constantly, and nobody could get any work done. And then when they were trying to actually talk to each other, everybody was sort of absorbed in their devices. And so they set a rule, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, there are no interruptions from 9 a.m. to noon. You are literally not allowed to talk to each other. And they got a 65% increase in the average engineer's productivity. They launched their project on time for the first, uh, I think it was the first time in company history. And then right after that, they all went back to their old interrupting habits. Mm. Um, and the managers just said, ah, you know what, like, we don't want to be so draconian about it. Mm. And as soon as they gave it a little bit of flexibility, people lost. It's the willpower point that, that Simon just made. What do you mean interrupting? You mean they're working and they're... Hey, Katie, you know, I, I'm sorry. Like, you seem to be in the middle of something, but like, I have a really burning question for you. And then you're expected to drop everything. Or I hate to interrupt you, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, in, but, but interruptions now are pervasive in our society. Even if somebody's not stopping you, what's happening is your, if your phone is on your desk, it goes bing, or if you have it face up next to you, it lights up, or the, you get an email, or if you have notifications turned on on your computer, every update you get on all your or social media is just a little bored with up. what you're doing, so, right? So there's data on this, which is, and I can't remember the exact numbers as to how frequently we get interrupted, but it's, it's an insanely high number. Yeah. Like it, and we need 20 minutes to engage, you need 20 minutes of concentration before you actually get into deep thought. And every time you're interrupted, it restarts. And so if you keep getting interrupted, you actually can never actually engage in deep thought because it takes 20 minutes to reset each so time. So do you think all this stuff is contributing sort of to the impatient quotient it, that you talked about? It's, it's all built in. And what's happening is when we're not physically getting interrupted, we're actually self-interrupting. So what happens, happens is your phone didn't ding, but you checked it. Yeah, that's what I did. You didn't get an email, but you stopped writing in, in Word. You go over to email, hit refresh, and then go back to Word. So we're actually, it's so, it's actually self-interrupting now. Well, there's always something new on your phone. That's part of the problem. You turn off all notifications. But even like the Apple News, it's like, what's happening now? Yeah. Right? Yeah, but, so to, 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 to Adam's point, which is putting it in another room makes it much easier to not self-interrupt. Can we or get interrupted. Go ahead, Adam. Oh, I was just going to say, we've both spent a lot of time working with the U.S. military. And one of the most like, fascinating things that happens when you go into the Pentagon is if you walk into a, a classified or top secret room, you literally are not allowed to bring any devices in. And so then you might be sitting in a two-hour briefing, and then you have another hour where you talk. The depth of conversation that happens when nobody is allowed to check out is great. And then you have scheduled breaks where everybody go check, goes and checks their devices and then comes back into the room. And there's no reason why non-military organizations can't do this. Agreed. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see every workplace testing this out. One of the things yeah. that you didn't mention, Simon, when you were talking about those four things, and you, you mentioned it, sort of alluded to it earlier about 
baby boomers being shaped by the 60s and 70s. Yep. How have millennials been shaped by world events or domestic events like the financial crisis yep. or 9-11 and Donald Trump for that matter and what's going on externally and, and, and how's that shaping their goals and their aspirations? So they're much more socially conscious. Um, um, they, they want business to be a force for good. Um, they, want to, uh, they want to do good to do well. Um, unfortunately, it gets a little exaggerated, like every tech company is want, trying to change the world. I don't know what that means. But, but, but the point is, is that they are, they are much more socially conscious. They're also much more accepting uh, as, as a generation. Like, um, you know, gender identity, sexuality, nobody cares when you're younger. The, the best evidence was the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, um, so Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, and I, I happened to be on a, on a military base the week it happened, and there was a young airman who had a, a rainbow sticker on her um, bumper, which she was now allowed to have. And I asked her, I got a, what happened? Like, they repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. What happened? Absolutely nothing. Which means you're taking some 18-year-old from the middle of nowhere America who's probably nef never left his own town. He decides he wants to serve his United States Army, and he's going to be told that you're going to be serving with openly gay soldiers, and he doesn't care. I mean, I think that's fantastic. And I think the older generations could learn a lot about accepting people who aren't like us from this younger generation. We wanted to talk about some, sort of give some pragmatic advice uh, to folks because I think for, for millennials in terms of finding a good job fit, and Adam and I were talking earlier before the panel started about how little guidance colleges really give kids to match their skills with the job that they're really gonna love or even kind of a, an area that they're going to love in terms of work. And um, how can we, you know, I was thinking about that call you got from your former student that wanted to leave the investment banking firm because it seems like a lot of people do that by default because they know they're going to get paid a lot of money and they're really the only people who come to college campuses to recruit. There's so many other different professions and, and careers. So A, why, why can't, why aren't they doing a, why aren't we collectively doing a better job in helping guide young people into professions where they're really going to thrive and be passionate about what they're doing? I think, I think part of the problem is we actually have too many options. So I, I think Americans would be much better off if they were raised in a system that looked a little bit more like Germany, where you get to choose like one of three broad tracks, right? Like, do I want to go technical? Do I want to do something that's more interpersonal? Do I want to do something that, that's maybe more creative? Um, and then I don't have to consider like thousands and thousands of choices. I have a sort of a more reasonable choice set. Um, I think that one of the, the most disturbing things that I've, I've watched happen is you, you have a group of students who basically only chooses their jobs on the basis of the outcomes that are attached to them. So what's the pay? What's the prestige? What's the next opportunity it'll create? But your experience of work has nothing to do with the outcomes of it. It's all about the process of doing work. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is we actually need to educate students about, like, this is actually what you do day to day when you have a given job. And then you find out what it means to be an investment banker, and you're like, I don't know why anyone would do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, in all seriousness, what I tell my students is, if you, like, if you wake up or go to bed like, thinking about markets and you find them really interesting, you should absolutely yeah. go into finance. Yeah. But most of the students who choose those jobs are actually not intrinsically interested in the nature of that work. And they only find that after they're doing it day in and day out. And I think that's true for any job, right? I don't want to be hard on finance, maybe a little bit. But <laughs> I, think that, um, I think what we need to do is we actually need to, we need to recruit for these jobs totally differently. We have to break down a day in the life of this is what you do in this job. And we need to create that for every job in the world. And hopefully then people can see what their lives will be like. I think, I think parents and guidance counselors are also to blame. We, we, tell our, we tell our kids, get a job, but we never tell them, get a job you love. Or we say, you can do anything. Or you can do anything, yeah. Right. So the paradox of choice. But I think there's, 
you know, I think turning down a job that offers you a lot of money and taking a job that you really love the people you're going to be working with when you went through the interview, like, should be prioritized. Like, I think, I think we, we've sort of lopsided how we even help our young people make choices. We literally will ask them, well, which one's offering you more money? What are the benefits? Not, did you really love the people you interviewed with? Because you're going to be working with them every single day of your life. Simon Sinek wrote the book, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. Adam Grant is also an author. He co-wrote Option B with Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg. Katie Couric became the first woman at the helm of an evening newscast when she solo anchored the CBS Evening News. Ever since the Aspen Ideas Festival wrapped up in July, we've been listening to the wealth of great talks that came out of it. We're carefully choosing our favorites for the podcast. Each week until the end of August, we're dropping a bonus episode. On Friday, listen as CNN's Fareed Zakaria talks about the roots and future of populism. But there's also this lack of intention, I think, among some millennials that Adam and I both really like this book by Meg Jay called The Defining Decade, and I think David Brooks mentioned it in a column recently where, you know, a lot of people in their 20s are kind of waiting to find their bliss and they're just putting it off. And she says basically 30 is not the new 20, that that's a really critically important decade that you can't just kind of float around and jump from thing to thing and kind of, you know, live in your parents' basement and sort of wait and see what's going to float your boat. So that that's sort of the other side of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, w one of the things that contributes to that is I think that especially for all the hyper-achieving, you know, millennials that, that we see, and this is now true for Gen Z as well, there's, there's this expectation that you not only know what your first job is going to be, but second, third, fourth, and fifth, and you should have a 20-year plan. And I've, I have a lot of students who come in and they say, look, like, here's my plan. Like, which, which job should I consider for 27? And then at 32, like, what, what organization should I be moving to then? And uh, I, I brought Sheryl Sandberg to campus a couple months ago, and uh, we, had, we had our students in the room, and I said, look, what, what advice would you give on that? And she said, well, you know, when I graduated from college, Mark Zuckerberg was in diapers. And so if I had had that plan, I would have literally missed out on the, the best career choice I ever could have made. And you should never have one of these career plans. And then that causes this tremendous anxiety because if you lived a life where every single thing was planned out for you, and all of a sudden you have no idea what's staring out at you two years down the road, that's a little bit terrifying. So what is, what is the best approach, you think? I think the best approach is to say, look, there are some skills that I really want to learn and practice. And I'm going to take my first job based on that. Mm -hmm. And then once I've sort of gotten a, a handle on those skills, I want to figure out what else I want to learn how to do. And I'll choose job two as I've kind of gained clarity on that from job one. Yeah. I remember in, in my career, I got a lot of things wrong, but I got one thing right, which is when I was interviewing as an entry-level person, you know, the interviewer or the HR person would always ask me, what are you looking for? And my answer was always the same, and it was sincere. I said, I'm looking for a mentor. And I literally would go from these interviews, and I would pay so much attention to the person who was going to be my boss, because I knew, I knew enough to know that I knew nothing. And I knew that I needed somebody to watch over me, and actually took care in me. And I think to prioritize finding a mentor um, it doesn't really matter what career field you go into. You can go into something that has, it's not a glamorous business. I mean, one of the best companies that I've visited, I don't know if you've had a chance to visit them, is WD-40. I mean, they make lubrication, for heaven's sakes. They make your door not squeaky. And they have one product. 
That's it. And it's one of the most fantastic companies to work for because they all love and care, care about each other. And so anybody who's trying to find a job, go work for WD-40, not because of the product, not because of the pay, but because of the people. And because there's, they're, they're invested in learning and education. And you know, asking, look, look for a mentor. You know? it's, like, it's like looking for a friend or looking for love. You go on a date. You don't evaluate how much money they make in the house they, work, they live in. You say, do I like this person? Do I want to spend time with this person? I think, we need to, I need to, I think we need to teach people to look for those things when they interview. And I also think internally you have to kind of make a fair and, and, and sometimes harsh assessment of your own skills. You know, I think sometimes we're pretty set in terms of where we are at, at 22. You know, what we're good at, what we, you know, what kind of environment do we thrive in? You know, I'm very social and I like to, to write, so that's why I went into journalism. And I figured, well, those skills will serve me well. And so I think people sometimes don't realistically look at, at what they're excellent at and how to apply those skills in the workforce. Yeah, I, I worry a lot about that. I, I think a lot of people are familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, which shows that the, the more unskilled you are in a domain, the less capable you are of judging your own skills. And so if you're really incompetent, you don't know that you're incompetent because uh, you don't even know what it, what it takes to, to be competent. And I think that leads a lot of people to be overconfident about skills that they, they may need to work on and develop. And then you, I've actually I've had the experience of sharing that evidence with people. And they're like, yeah, that's true of other people, but not of me. And so, okay, now you have a meta bias, the I'm not bias bias, uh, which is the worst of all biases. And when, when you think about this, we really need other people's feedback to know what we're good at and what we're capable of learning and improving on. One of my favorite exercises uh, that's been studied now for about a decade is called the Reflected Best Self-Portrait. What you do is you gather 15 to 20 people who know you well from different walks of life. Could be coworkers, family, friends, and you ask them to write a story about who you are when you're at your best, a specific time when you you were your best. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it it has to be a moment that stands out of, of you when you're sort of displaying your strengths. And then what you do is you collect those stories, and then your job is to identify the patterns. And write a, you actually compose a portrait using all the different pixels. And I do this in class every year, and my students come out with completely different strengths than they thought they had. And the stories are also really meaningful because people remember things that affected them or touched them. That you know, like I've had students say, like, I, I don't even believe that this happened. Like, I have no recollection of it whatsoever. And I think we, have, we need more systematic ways to get people that kind of feedback about their skills and strengths. I think that's, that's true. a great idea. Uh, you know, we're almost out of time, which I feel bad about because I wanted you all to be able to ask these guys some questions. So, but we have a little bit of time, so we have a lot of questions. I've got a couple dozen millennials that work for me, and I've experienced a lot of these same issues. Not to oversimplify, but can't you explain a lot of the challenges we've talked about just in terms of the era in which these young professionals grew up? I mean, if you're 25 today, you don't remember the world except for the last 16 years. You've only known George W. Bush and Barack Obama. You've only known zero to one percent economic growth. And if in an environment where you don't see opportunity every day and you read about declining opportunity every day, why not choose lifestyle? Why not choose immediate gratification? Because, I mean, it's hard work doing what Bill Gates did, doing what Jamie Dimon does, doing what Larry Ellison does, doing what Mark Zuckerberg is doing. It's hard work. And if you're never really going to get it, it's never really going to pay off, you don't really see it paying off for anybody else, then why, I mean, you're just as likely to get rich or be happy being struck by lightning as by working really hard for 25 years. So I I have a point of view on that, which is, I I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think it it dovetails really nicely with what Simon was saying about these these constant immediate gratifications that lead people to want things sooner um, and expect them to be better than they, they really were. 
I think that we shouldn't overlook the role of age in this process, too. There's a psychologist, Gene Twenge, at San Diego State, who's been trying to figure out, okay, how much of the differences that we see are really driven by the generation you belong to versus just the stage of life that you're at. And if we take the entitlement topic uh, as one example, um, she does show that millennials score are slightly more entitled, more narcissistic than boomers or Gen Xers. But almost all of that effect is driven by age, not generation. And the way we know that, know? yeah, so... Uh, wait till they're older to find out. You, you would, except she goes backward instead. Okay. So she takes surveys that were done of high school seniors and college seniors in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. And so you can kind of hold constant what stage of life they're at. And she finds that, actually, can, can you raise your hand if you're a Gen Xer? Okay, Boomer, raise your hand. Okay, any veterans in the room as well? Okay, it turns out you were all as entitled as millennials when you were their age. <laughs> That's what her data show. And so I think there is a sense in which before you have responsibility for other people, before you really have to think about, you know, sort of your role in society, um, there is a tendency to sort of have that mentality. But the self-view is only one part of it because it's the world that you're entering in that then exaggerates those things. So if you're entering into a world, and you're, more importantly, you're entering into a workforce where leadership right now is crap. We have managers, not leaders, right? And the, the organizations prioritize arbitrary numbers over, over human beings. Growth is seen as a, as a financial thing, not as a human being thing. I want my people to grow. And you're taking that, which may be true from generation to generation, but we're have, asking them to enter into a workforce that is completely different than when you and I entered the workforce and when our parents entered the workforce, right? For, for many, many reasons. And so the problem is, is though that may be true, will, will, the work for, will the environment that they're entering help or hurt the current state? Wanted to ask a quick question. Uh, Simon mentioned about the value of finding a mentor. Uh, and Adam also said about asking the question, what other people think of your strength. And I stumbled upon uh, the value of mentor. And I realized in university and college, they don't teach that. So for me, after I graduated from college, there was a period before I went to graduate school. And that's when I realized professionally harassing people Asking them, hey, I don't, there's a lot of things I don't know. Can you help me? Like, what? Because I was confused. And my question is, what can universities and colleges do other than four years break from life? What do you guys think? What? Well, you guys are doing it. He, he teaches. <laughs> he teaches. I, I just it, got right? voluntold to answer this one, so I will. Uh, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I think that. Uh, this, is, this has been something that I actually think it happens in the classroom um, more than anywhere else. I think that we designed too many classrooms uh, where it's all about individual achievement. And we're actually missing out on, on great ways to teach students to learn from each other every day. Uh, so I had a chance to experiment with this over the, the past decade or so. Um, we had, I had a lot of colleagues who ran forced grading curves, and they would say, look, top 10% get A's, and then you know, below get you know, A minuses. And <laughs> not a joke, but uh, I, I decided. Or you hear from their parents, right? Oh, uh, more, more than more than I should. But I, I decided that uh, what we should actually be incentivizing is not students to outperform each other, but rather students to teach each other. Um, we know one that the best way to learn something is to teach it. And two, that you know, the, the value of being in a university setting, you could, you could learn everything that we teach from a book or from a Coursera course, right? The value is actually the human interaction and the exchange of perspectives. And they're totally disincentivized to do that when you're pitting them against each other where you know, if I do better, that means you do worse. Yeah. 
So what I ended up doing was I took my final exam and I said, uh, what I will do is I'll uh, take the hardest part of the exam, which is my multiple choice section, and I'm gonna let you, for the question that you don't know the answer to, you can write down the name of somebody in the class who you think knows the answer. And if they get it right, you get the points too. And it was remarkable. All of a sudden, these students who totally studied independently before, um, I accidentally got copied on one of the email chains where they had, they had divided up the entire course. They had agreed like who was gonna be an expert on what. They all wrote summaries and shared them. And what was, what was most exciting about this was the class mean went up by almost 3% on the exam that year. Um, so they actually learned from each other. I would love to see more of those kinds of experiments happening. I, I, when, I, when, I, when I used to teach, uh, I would do group projects for my final exam, and um, I would make the groups. I wouldn't let them self-select. And what I would do is I'd take my best students in the class and put them in one group. And I would take my worst students in the class and I'd put them in one group and then evenly you know, sift out the, the rest. Did they know who was and, who? And when, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, would do it, I would do it out loud. I'm like, you're in team one, you're in team two, you're in team three. It, and as I would read out the, the teams, literally is when I got to the, my, my, my dream team, they'd all go, come on, right? Because it's, it's a competitive environment. Like they're, gonna, they're all going to give presentations and they're all going to get graded as a group. Never once did my dream team ever come in first. Never once. It was always the average teams that came in because the dream teams would come to me and they would drive me nuts. Somebody's not pulling their weight. I'm doing all the work. Am I going to, what if I get an A but they get a C? Do, can I, why do we have to get, can we, where the, the team of, of the, the average students worked so well together that they weren't preoccupied with their own, and James Sirwicki's work talks about this, the, the wisdom of crowds, which is a team of average will always outperform a dream team because they're not in it for themselves. So um, I, I think I think we have time right. for one more question. Um, I think that there's something like 78 million millennials with the oldest being 37 this year, I believe. Can you talk about, you touched on it initially about the, where, they're, where they are in life. Yeah. Can you touch a little bit more on overall themes and, and really the changes as these millennials, and I'm a millennial, but as we're going through, as we're getting married, we're having kids, we still want a home, we still want good schools, still want safety. Can you just touch on how, where people are in their lives are affecting the research that you're seeing, but also how they're working in the company, including geography, whether rural or urban? Yeah, um, so to be clear, um, the generations are pretty clearly defined. They're in, come in 20-year pods. Um, millennials start about in their gray lines, they're not clear lines, but around 1984-ish is when you're going to start to see the millennial generation. So one of the funny things is people say, you know, you can't self-declare yourself a millennial or not. Like, you, it's just a generational thing. Um, there is some variation, clearly, um, depending on where you go as to how much, how exaggerated these um, characteristics are. Um, you'll find often in rural places um, where there's maybe um, less stuff and less, inter and there's more human interaction, maybe especially if you're working on a farm with people. In the military, for example, we also see that when you're deployed with someone and you don't have a phone and there's a huge amount of human interaction, we see the effects reduced. But unfortunately, we see when they come back, for example, and there's like your experiment before, which is the draconian way the company did it, but when they, they went back to their old ways, some of the habits don't last. Um, but... Um, um, clearly, relationships help. Um, there's good data on this. Uh, people who are in happy relationships live longer than people who are single. Terrible thing for a New Yorker to learn. Um, um, and and it, it always goes back to relationships. It always goes back to the quality of relationships. So waiting longer to get married increases the likelihood that you're going to stay married, um, the data shows. Um, so all of those things are good. It's, it all boils down to the quality of relationships and, 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 and friendships and the people around you.
the only thing I would add is just to say that I think that there's so much on this that's about managing expectations, like, like I touched on earlier. Um, Eli Finkel has, has shown that uh, on average, the, the, the typical marriage is getting worse, but the best marriages are getting better. And a huge part of those great marriages are reasonable expectations, that this person is not going to fulfill your every need in life or going to be the perfect Hollywood partner. And if I could say one thing to the millennials that I teach, it would be you actually want to marry someone who is imperfect. Kind of like your career. <laughs> well, I could talk to you guys all day, but we're out of time. So thank you all so much. Katie Couric launched Katie Couric Media in 2015. She has a podcast of her own that bears her name. Adam Grant teaches management and psychology at the Wharton School. Simon Sinek is an author and speaker who teaches leaders and organizations how to inspire people. Their conversation was held on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.